Yeah, you're very well informed, both of you, by the way, if I may say so. <laughs> really good questions. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. So, modes of liability today, what's that all about? Well, it's mostly about who's responsible, how can the politician in charge be found criminally responsible for what happens when, for example, genocide happens on their watch. Or it can be when a businessman is um, selling something that is later used in international crimes and how do you hold that person responsible. So it's about um, what can actually be taken to court, whether a, um, a commander or somebody similar... Um also, whether they could have known or whether they could have prevented something. And who are we chatting to? We have Elise van Sliedrecht with us today. Hi, Elise. Hi, hello. She's a professor at Leeds Law School and a joint editor of a new book about modes of liability, which sounds really complicated. So can you explain it to us in uh, non, um, for the people who haven't studied law like Janet and I? Right. So modes of liability are really different ways in which you contribute to a crime and that make you criminally liable, responsible for that crime so that you can be tried. And um, the law on it is actually really complicated because very often, certainly with international crimes, which happen on a mass scale, a lot of people contribute. And um, it, it's well-organized violence and it's difficult to extract who is really responsible for what. And also, who is the person that's really most responsible? That's the biggest challenge, because that person is very often the person behind the scene of the crimes, if you like, who is the one who has no blood on his or her hands. That can be a military commander who has devised a certain military campaign. It can be a politician, a person who has... Um, pursued certain ethnic policies like Milosevic or Karadzic and it's these people that tend to be prosecuted by international courts and tribunals because the idea is that the domestic system can't really handle these perpetrators. And is there a big difference between liability in international criminal law and what you could do on the national level or are the laws similar it's just they get tried more in international courts? Have you got a week? We need to explain <laughs> that one. Yes or no, Elise. That's going to be really difficult, be really difficult on this podcast to, to explain that in, in a short and simple way. But let me try. It's um, the international criminal justice system, the, the, the courts in the international sphere, if you like, they do use ideas and concepts and theories of national criminal law, so theories that domestic courts use. However, they don't always fit, and that has to do with the fact that um, those behind the scene of the crimes, the masterminds, as I just discussed earlier, they are very often far removed from the scene of the crimes. Whereas um, in most domestic situations, crimes that have been committed, even if the person who is in the dock is not the one who's, who's committed it, there won't be that far a distance from the scene of the crime. So you can have two people planning a murder, one person goes out to physically kill a person and the other guy who was part of the planning is also criminally responsible. And that's, you have to prove that there was a plan and that they met and everything, that's okay. But with international crimes, you need to prove that Karadzic, who has no idea who physically raped people or who physically killed people, he doesn't, well, he knows that they are sort of the result of his policies, but he doesn't know the people that commit these crimes. To link that 
to him is actually challenging. So that's where the, the, the sort of the typical feature of international criminal law and criminal responsibility can, comes can in. Can we just mention um, who Karadzic is and who Milosevic yeah, sorry, is, yeah. so, that, yeah. so that we're all on the this same page? My, this is my favourite topics, former Yugoslav war, so here comes my mastermind topic. So. <laughs> What's Milosevic, the phrase that you use? Milosevic is Slobodan Milosevic, the former Yugoslav president um, who is, was famously on trial for masterminding um, the Yugoslav wars in Bosnia Croatia um, and partly in Kosovo, but died before there was a verdict. Karadzic is Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb political leader uh, convicted of genocide by the Yugoslav tribunal. So these are important um, um, examples that we have of, of how this discussion around modes of liabilities have worked. What I imagine is that all the lawyers who've been involved have come from different national jurisdictions, so have all brought in all kinds of ideas with them. So that's is that one of the reasons why you've got this complexity? Definitely, it adds to it. So the complexity is that, what I just explained, is that distance, the remoteness. And secondly, it's indeed the legal cultures that sort of come together in an amalgam at these courts, which makes it sometimes really difficult to work together because people don't really understand each other's language. Um, and I find it fascinating, actually. I mean, you see the common lawyers who like concepts that are quite broad conspiracy, joint enterprise, it's an organized, it's, it's a term that's used for organized crime and that's used very often in the UK and also in the um, in Australia, in the US. The continental lawyers, they like strict concepts, like written law, so they have a very different, more legalistic way of approaching these terms and they don't really get on together. So part of my work has been to, to explain to different legal cultures that they're actually not that different um, but you do have indeed these two these cultures basically these legal families coming together common law and civil law and there's a real difference in how they approach these terms and I should add it makes it makes it I think even more interesting is that there's also what we call norm entrepreneurialism so there are countries who try to export their law to the international arena especially Germany is very keen on having the German legal system be the system that is used in international in the international arena. Um, that's met sometimes with, with you know, very welcoming attitude, but also with a lot of resistance, especially from common lawyers. Yeah. And it seems that um, some of the concepts have all also changed, because if you look at a lot of the cases at the Yugoslav Tribunal, one thread that ran through all the modes of liability was this joint criminal enterprise, which is very particular to the um, ICTY. Um, and was often joked that it's actually an acronym for just convict everyone, um, because as long as you could just argue that somebody was part of a joint criminal enterprise, they could be convicted for whatever crimes other members of this joint criminal enterprise committed. So a bit catch-all. A bit. And so now um, the ICC doesn't have this mode of liability. Is, it, is the joint criminal enterprise then officially dead, or is it coming back in different ways at the ICC? How do you yeah, see that? Um, it's, it's a really good question. So I, and I have to say that there are different views about this, but I do think that joint enterprise um, is sort of coming back through the back door. It's under a different terminology and under a different way of reasoning around it. It's a Germanic concept that's based on the Eichmann trial. If you have control over other people um, who do the dirty work for you, then you can be held accountable. So it's the control of the crime concept. 
that's actually if you see how the courts have applied it um, and and how broad actually it, it has become, it's almost same the same as joint enterprise liability. That's my my take on this. So this whole guilt by association critique, which is very valid critique, and I'm sure when you talk to defence lawyers, you will find that they hate it. But they equally hate the control concept. They don't think it's much better. Um, and um, it's it's the downside of, of that theory, I have to say, is that it's so theoretical. It um, assumes, bear with me because this is actually maybe a bit technical, but it assumes that people who commit these crimes are part of an organized apparatus that is very, you know, rigid. And if you replace one person, if you take one person out and replace it with another person, the so-called fungibility, it doesn't matter the person, that organization will still, you know, be culpable of crimes. That person, that cog in the wheel is still um, causing crimes to, 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 to occur. And then the person running that organization eventually is the person that's held accountable. Now, that idea of a rigid bureaucracy may have worked in Nazi Germany. I was going to say, it all sounds very um, bureaucratic and uh, you could prove it when there was lots of paper around to prove it. What, what, how on earth do you, do you argue that? I know. And that's been a problem with, with the ICC cases, that they've not been able really to um, apply the concept in that way. And there's a lot of, I think, push from... Um, legal officers that like this theory to apply it and the judgments are very long of the ICC you can have 500 pages about this theory and I kid you not with footnotes and a lot of engagement with scholarly work and but they're dealing with you know armed militia with African disorganized people bands roaming around the country and 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 killing and, and and raping so it's a very different situation on the ground than it is before the, the tribunals or before the court. So, uh, you know, it's great. It looks good on paper, but it doesn't really work. And so the ICC has also been accused, I think, of people working at the ICC as a bit of a laboratory to find the perfect concept. But there's no such thing. I was going to say, have we got one? Because uh, I was looking back a bit at um, some of the times that the words modes of liability had to go into pieces that I was writing. And there was the whole discussion around uh, one of the Congo cases and mm. um, which mode of liability um, the militia leaders connected to an attack on a village uh, Bogoro could be charged under and and it seemed to um, everything seemed to go wrong in that it did yeah that's the case where it all went wrong basically so they started out using this bureaucratic concept but then the facts didn't stack up, if you like, and then they had to change what they call the qualification, which they did very late in the trials from this indirect co-perpetration control theory to instigation um, and common purpose, which is a bit like joint enterprise. But Can you just um, sort of pull... Oh, yeah, I've got some, quite a lot of noise going on, but can you just pull out those, uh, those concepts? Yes, of course. So... Um, with regard to the attack on Bogoro, the problem was they accused two um, military people, uh, Chui and Katanga, for cooperating in this attack and being accountable for the crimes that occurred during the attack, which went beyond the actual attack on the village. It was also raping women and killing people. And um, the tribe, there were two different ethnic um 
backgrounds here. So there were two groups with different allegiances, and the one ethnic group only wanted to listen to Chui and the other only to Katanga. So how could you hold both of them accountable for the crimes committed by the people of the other ethnic origin? Well, you could do that by relying on co-perpetration. Because they cooperated, these crimes could still be attributed to them. Um, and because they both used these military people to um, as tools to commit the crime. So it was a sort of um, a combination of co-perpetration together at the horizontal level and through other people indirect perpetration. Well, the fact that I have to explain this to you and <laughs> you look at me very puzzled looks here um, says a lot, I think. Um, anyway, that was a theory and it didn't work. So... Um, for the first of all, they severed the two cases. They quitted Chui because there was simply no proof, and then they had only Katanga in the dock, and then they had to change the mode of liability, and they, they did not convict him on indirect co-perpetration, but on the basis of, I have to think, it was actually common purpose liability, the fact that he pursued um, committing crimes with other people, and that was a sort of a regarded by the court as lesser liability in the sense it was not he was not a perpetrator, but he was a, sort of an assessorial. What does it matter? Well, um, it's again something I could talk about for a week. There are different views here. My point is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because... But it must matter because it, it, it matters in terms of yeah. what sentence you get at the end. Yes? No? Well, it doesn't because the categorization at the ICC at least, there is no particular sentence attached to it. The sentencing is separate, so you can always reflect the role of a person in the sentencing stage. However, where these concepts come from, the continent mainly, um, that's where the categorization does matter because those who facilitate always get uh, a sentence reduction, unlike in the English system where you're just the common law system where you just have the sentencing separate, and that's where you reflect the role. So that's why I agree with you. It doesn't really matter. But you could argue, well, maybe in terms of fair labelling, Right, and that's where international criminal law, I think, has a bit of a different uh, position than domestic trials. Because although the person has no blood on his hands, you do want to have him in the dock as the perpetrator, the murderer. But international law is all about, in a way, indirect perpetrators. Because what you want to see at an international tribunal is the man at the top or the woman at the top. That is responsible for everything or devise this plan or this uh, idea or this war to get his ideas across. So, so you're saying it's important that they do get it right? I think I w international criminal law is not really devised for direct perpetration in a way. It's devised to get those most responsible who are usually most far off. So they need to get some some link to the crimes to get. So in, ideally, I think uh, there's a lot of grumbling always that you only have low level people or that they're just doing the little fish and where are the big fish. Um, so it's a very squandery for international law. They're caught between having to have the big fish, but the big fish are usually indirect. So how do you then uh, square that? No, that's that's indeed the huge challenge. You, you summarise it very well. And I think the fact that um, you do want to reflect the gravity of someone's position and, and, and contribution to crimes despite the fact that he or she was maybe, you know, completely behind the scenes or at least not close physically to the to the crimes. You do want to do that in international criminal law, but it's actually through a criminal trial, it's a challenge. And if you get acquittals because you can't prove it, which we've had at the ICC, think of, you know, Bagbo and also Bemba 
Uh, it's so difficult to pin down the liability of those at the top. You have to think, you know, what's actually better? Is this really such a good idea to go after those masterminds when it's actually difficult to prove? And of course, I know in these cases, there was also, you know, the lack of cooperation with the ICC, a huge problem for the ICC. Um, but it's no coincidence, I think, that the prosecutors now in her prosecutorial policies of 2018 has announced to go to the mid-level and maybe even the lower level. But isn't it all a bit unfair, this constant experimentation? I mean, all these, these people in front of all these different courts get something thrown at them and then their lawyers have to make up some arguments about it and then it changes again a few years later. I, I so agree. I mean, it is unfair. Um, and I think that's the problem with international criminal law. It's quite, it's so, so fluid, it's so flexible. And, um, well, it makes it fun for us journalists. And for us academics. I mean, it's, it's a lot to play with. Um, but I think for defence counsel, it's hugely frustrating. And also for prosecutors. I mean, when they had to change the whole qualification in the Katanga case, it was after the, the final, you know, uh, deliberations and everything. It was the very end of the case. And you could say, in a way, well... This is almost you want to convict him, so all you're doing is just finding the right route to, to get there, and that's that's really against everything that international or that criminal law stands for as well. You know, presumption of innocence and all these rights that we have. Um, so I think for practitioners it can be really, really frustrating. And I, I you know, Melinda Taylor, for example, who was I think on Katanga, um, who just said, you know, I can't even explain also to my client what he's charged with. It's so complicated. Um, and yeah, the law, we, it's not really sure, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you can't really prepare it very well. And do you see a kind of change? Um, there's, um, if you look at the ICTY cases, a lot has changed in command responsibility in the sense, um, this is another, I guess it's not a mode of liability, but another way of how you can be responsible for people under your command, that it used to be very loose and then it got more and more kind of uh, targeted in the ICTY that first you just had to be somebody under command, then you had to kind of direct them to do certain things. Do you see a kind of narrowing in um, what used to be a very wide concept of command responsibilities now kind of narrowed in international criminal law and what does that say for kind of the future of command responsibility? Mm. Yeah, you're very well informed, both of you, by the way, if I may say so. <laughs> really good questions. Um, so I think um, command responsibility is a good one. I just think the law wasn't very clear until the ICTY came into power or, or you know, started its, its cases because um, we had the Nuremberg Tribunal, but they didn't really use the concept. And there were a few trials in the sort of uh, that wave that came of trials that came after the big trial, and um, they weren't probably legally argued I would I would say this very much on the facts and there wasn't much dispute either so it really was the first time at the ICTY to really look into this concept as a criminal law concept and the Celebici case or the Mucic case that was really the the uh, trial um, I think because it is a criminal law concept there was a lot of insistence on proof of knowledge what did the commander actually know and what if he can't prove that he know or he this not knowing to to what extent is that exonerating you that was the big question if there is information available and you didn't go out and investigate further then you can be held liable that was the test um so and, and with command responsibility, which initially seemed the perfect concept to get you know, hold of those big guys, um, it didn't really work because 
there was this Celebiti trial, which had narrowed it quite. You had to show at least that there had, you know, there was information around that put you on notice of something, and that's the problem very often with these people at the top. They don't know everything. What's yeah. The, what, yeah. yeah. What's sorry. the Celebici case? The case is a case of detainment camp run by Muslims, where Bosnian Serbs and other non-Muslims were detained, and this was of the camp's leaders. And then the question was, how much did they know of what their subordinates were doing, mistreating inmates, and at what point did they know, and did they do enough to stop it? So we've looked um, through this uh, interview so far fairly closely at what's been going on ICTY, ICC. But there's also this sense that there's a whole world of modes of liability beyond that, like businesses being held responsible for things. Is this the future for modes of liability? Um, It can be. So um, I think... You discussed very briefly the Frans van Anderaat in the beginning, maybe, or the, the businessman that was yeah, supplying chemicals, yeah. right, the, the to Frans a regime. The Frans van Anderaat case is yeah. a case of a Dutch businessman who was convicted under Dutch law for war crimes because he sold chemicals to the Iraq regime of Saddam Hussein that were then used in the Halabja uh, poison gas attack on Kurds. So how was he liable? He provided the chemicals uh, that were used in the attack, and he knew they, were, they could be used for poison gas. So he had to know something? I'm not sure he had to know. Well, he it was forbidden, I think, to sell them. So it was pretty obvious that the regime was doing shady things, and then he was selling dangerous chemicals. Okay, well, but was, his big yeah. his big defense was, I think, they were used in textile bleaching or something. Those chemicals, and no of textile course, industry, yeah, yeah, of course, uh, Saddam Hussein just bought them because he wanted to make T-shirts or something. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, that, so that's, that works, but that was a sort of a one-man band, a very small company. So then you can use sort of traditional theories of complicity, of aiding, abetting, and, and, and what was just explained. In terms of big businesses, um, it's much more complicated. And very often you will have the responsibility to diffuse amongst different organs in an organization. And you can use other concepts. So you can use corporate Uh, liability or corporate complicity. Now, that is not something international courts can deal with because they don't have the power. That that, that concept simply does not exist at the ICC. It does, interestingly enough, uh, exist in a draft for a a new court in the African court. Uh, The statute is not a draft, even it's a final statute. They do have jurisdiction. They have the power to deal with um, legal entities, ergo, Um, organizations and businesses but uh, you know the Dutch state for example does have the possibility we we, Dutch courts can can indeed um, go after organizations who uh, are implicit or complicit in um, in certain trades shady businesses and I think it's the way forward to be honest because it's actually I mean if you look at all the crimes the ICC deals with it's all around um, environmental uh, resources. It's all about diamonds. It's the areas Ituri. It's very rich with minerals, and all these, you know, power struggles between tribes and groups. It's because of those um, resources and businesses fuel that conflict. And it's only, I think, you know, a very good strategy to to try and go to the root of it. And that would mean, I think, going after um, those businesses on the basis of corporate liability. And why not just maybe civil liability, which is a diff- not criminal responsibility, but, you know, under civil law, we have a little bit fle- more flexible terms and you don't have to always show that there was knowledge. You can you, you can use concepts like risk that um, can then, um, yeah, be the basis of responsibility.
you've just edited this volume about it. Are there? Um, are you going to write anything more about modes of liability, or is it done now? Well, you've you've explored it all. Janet, it's a really good question because I started with writing about this twenty one years ago, and it's basically my whole career. And I try to get away from it all the time, and it's impossible. It is impossible because everyone <laughs> wants to know about it, and there's a new book coming out, and then another PhD, and and so people keep writing about it courts keep you know making decisions in this arena in this area so it's it's something I find still very interesting um but also a little bit frustrating because we don't seem to have the perfect concept and we just maybe want to just move away from that so I've come to to think you know I'm going to look at conspiracy which is the big elephant in the room that no one wants to really uh, use in these international trials but I think at the end of the day we've tried all these beautiful theories I don't think it's working and I think we should just try to to go back to the second world war cases and Nuremberg where they did use conspiracy Um, and I want to just have a look at how that could play out in some of the cases of these masterminds and then another thing which is um, more going towards domestic justice is universal jurisdiction Um, something the Dutch are dealing with a lot at the moment Um, and how do you deal with a person who committed crimes in Ethiopia when he was not Dutch yet uh, under different laws which did not necessarily prohibit what he did in the same way as the Dutch now do can you just then apply Dutch law these are questions about legitimacy that I look forward to, 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 to diving into and you're very much with the times to become a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. So we always have a few questions that we uh, ask every guest. And uh, one is, what do people always get wrong about your job? What do they imagine you do that, uh, that, they, that you don't? Okay, I think the one thing they get wrong about academia is that it's sort of this laid back, easy job to retire into. So former politicians, especially in America, they always, you know, especially the defeated ones, uh, they go and find a, some, some academic home and you think, oh God, that just doesn't look very good, I think, because it's actually really competitive. And uh, and I see it certainly with younger colleagues, you have to do everything, you know, get the grants, get the, the publications out. And it's 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 very stressful. And unfortunately, I see, especially women also, when they're in their, you know, those years when you are raising a young family and you have to do all those things, it's tough and and sometimes they just don't yeah they can't cope so that's the one thing i i really want to uh to uh to argue against yeah. another one of our asymmetrical haircuts question is uh, have you read or seen anything lately or even much more that you would recommend that really would have changed your outlook on certain things or maybe your your profession or wow you're springing this one on me so much i could uh think of um I, I'm, I'm obsessed with Brexit at the moment, and um, and and these men and the the parallels between Boris Johnson and what's happening in the UK and what's happening in the US. And I've just been advised to read the most recent book um, of what's his name? Now come on, um, the guy who wrote about the Children Act, um, McEwen, Ian McEwen. Yeah. And he wrote just a short story, and it's, I think his first short story, and it's based on Kafka's Die Verwandlung, the transformation, and it's it's all about populism politics. And I think that's that's going to be, you know, how I look at these, both these situations going to be really interesting. I'm not going to go there because I only just started reading, but uh, I think it's going to be a good read. Well, we'll put a link to that to yes, on the, on the blog. Yes. And the last question 
is, is there something we should have asked you about modes of liability that we didn't? I think you asked all the right questions, to be honest. Yeah, no, you really did. That's why I said I'm impressed with the level of knowledge here in this room. <laughs> so. Oh, she says the nicest thing. Well done. Compliments no, from the, the professor. Perfect, the perfect yeah. podcast. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. thanks very much for coming in. And uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Look, thank a, you so much for having me. Oh, we have right. a present for you. Oh, dear. It's difficult to open, Lovely. so yeah. go ahead. You need to rip it apart. Do I? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, it's not a Boros mug, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't do that. We went, uh, we went up market with our merchandise. <laughs> oh, I love it. Excellent. So you now have the official mug. Haircuts. Yes. So I now have to get an asymmetrical haircut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Elise. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks very much. And um, we'll be back um, with another podcast soon. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.